Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at burnedbybooks. Let's start the show. The narrator of Ruth Madievsky's electric debut novel, All Night Pharmacy, spends most nights with her sister Debbie in a bar called Salvation, repurposed from a former Christian bookstore. Signs that promise that salvation still adorn the bar filled with actors, new agers, and most of all, addicts. It is there that the sisters dive under the waters of addiction, eventually finding their way to opiates, with all that comes crashing in with that kind of pill. When Debbie goes suddenly missing after a brief stint in rehab, the narrator begins a mythic quest for her, with stops in various kinds of underworlds, including working in the emergency room as an intake secretary. Along the way, she will encounter magic, ordinary and extraordinary and even possible salvation. When a woman named Sasha appears suddenly in her life, claiming to be her amulet against dangers and traumas, past and future, the narrator will find herself face-to-face with long-suppressed desires for fulfilling sexuality, for intimacy and honesty, and for a different kind of chosen queer family. After the two travel to Moldova to confront Sasha's own deep-buried traumas, the narrator will begin to realize that the search for Debbie is a search for herself. Told in four parts, All Night Pharmacy reads like a frayed electric cord, shocking, revelatory, and dangerous. Madievsky's prose lights up sentences and illuminates a life that feels distant and perilous, while at the same time leaving one feeling exposed and seen. It is a novel with a broad reach of empathy and perception, told at the level of one extraordinary and ordinary young woman on the brink. Originally from Moldova, Ruth Madievsky is a novelist, poet, and essayist living in Los Angeles. Her debut novel, All Night Pharmacy, has been named a most-anticipated 2023 book by the Los Angeles Times, Vogue, BuzzFeed, and elsewhere. Her debut poetry collection, Emergency Break, was the winner of the Wallstrad Contemporary Poetry Series and spent five months on Small Press Distribution's poetry bestseller list. She was the winner of the American Poetry Review's Stanley Kunitz Memorial Prize, the Iowa Review's Tim McGinnis Award for Fiction, and a Tin House Scholarship in Poetry. Welcome to the show, Ruth. Thank you so much. It is such a pleasure to have you here. I'm staring at at your novel's 
beautiful, uh, just en enchanting, bizarre cover and wondering a little bit how that cover got to be and whether you had a hand in selecting it. Yeah, I feel super lucky to have that cover, which is pretty much everything I ever wanted. <laughs> uh, when we were having the conversation about cover design, I told my team that I was really hoping for kind of splashy neon colors. And I was really into the idea of having just one image in the center that was kind of strange and alluring. And I mean, I think they knocked it out of the park. Yeah, I, I love that the colors evoke, I think, the bar of salvation and, you know, kind of the I feel like I've someone had described my prose as neon tinted the other day, and I felt like that felt so true. And, you know, you just called it frayed like an electric cord, which I think also evokes kind of the the sparky colors of the cover. Um, so I feel super lucky. Absolutely. And I love the fact that the 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 face, the dramatic face in the center is both dramatic and and you feel the personage, but it's also obscured, which I think says a lot about the narrator. Yeah, yeah, I think it kind of speaks to the fact that the book part of the mythic or part of her mythic journey in the book is about her trying to um enact her own agency and do the identity work that she has put off doing for so long because she has this domineering older sister around to tell her who she is. So, this is a novel in part about uh drug addiction, sexual abuse, queer awakenings, Moldova and the former Soviet Union the Holocaust and its inter intergenerational traumas, bar culture in L.A., psychics, etc., etc., etc. Another way to put it is it's about everything. How did, how did this narrator come to you and why did you want a singular first-person narrator to tell so many different kinds of interwoven stories about living in the world? It's funny, someone the other day in an interview asked me if the book is called All Night Pharmacy because... It's like an all-night pharmacy in the sense that there's just like so much shit in here. Like you can kind of wander <laughs> around and find every kind of story. It's <laughs> uh, very I, true. <laughs> it's it's so true. And I mean, that's one of my favorite parts of sharing my work with the world is people will ascribe this like brilliance to you that you don't deserve. <laughs> so, so now I'm just using that as my explanation. Um, but, you know, for me, I'm not an outliner when I write. I always sit down with no idea of where I'm going to go and just kind of hoping that I find a voice that I want to follow. Um, and so when I sat down to work on the book back in 2014, when it was originally going to be a linked story collection, um, I wrote that first line that has stayed the first line of the novel. Uh, spending time with my sister, Debbie, is like buying acid off a guy you met on the bus. And, <laughs> you know, I had no idea who this character was, who Debbie was. Um, but when I wrote that line, I was like, that's interesting. <laughs> Tell me more. Um, and that, that's how the whole book got written, basically, it was just trying to follow this compelling darkly comic uh, voice. Um, and that's the type of book that I like to read generally is voice driven literary fiction with these characters who are hyper specific, um, whose the way that they talk just really evokes what it's like to be a person in the world. Um, and so it just felt natural for me to write that way, too. Yeah, that, those are the kinds of books I love as well, voice-driven. And boy, was I hooked from that first line and first paragraph. And would you finish the, do the whole um, little paragraph there? Because it, the listeners will get a sense of why it grabs you so much. Spending time with my sister, Debbie, was like buying acid off a guy you met on the bus. You never knew if it would end with you, euphoric, tanning topless on a fishing boat headed for Ensenada. 
or coming to in a gas station bathroom, the insides of your eyes feeling as though they'd been scraped out with spoons. Often, it was both. Yeah, I, I love that. And such a great uh, mishmash of the kind of comedy and mm. looming darkness that that is so much part of this novel. It is, at its core, a story of sisterly love and commitment, but it's that same story is also one of dangerous codependency between the narrator and her sister, mm -hmm. Debbie. Neither sister is particularly responsible, and both are too often consumed with self-interest. What was the draw to this pair, and why did you want to explore the codependency of family members, especially those who have survived abuse? So it's interesting. When I first started the book as a link story collection, uh, the narrator's relationship with Debbie was certainly one of the big threads of the book, but it wasn't, I would say, the central thread. Um, and that's part of why I ended up kind of reverse engineering it as a novel once I had written about eight stories, is that they did, really didn't feel like more than the sum of their parts, you know? Um, and as I was thinking about how to make this into a cohesive narrative where the threads build on each other... Um, the narrator's relationship with Debbie and then Debbie's disappearance and, as you described it, the mythic quest of deciding whether or not to find her and um, how that ends up, that felt like it could be a good through line for the book. I'm honestly shocked that it wasn't the center because it's so pivotal and clearly you you did a good job reverse engineering it. But it's uh, thinking of it as as linked stories. I guess the the sections with Sasha, I could understand as being separate, but it really does feel of a whole. And it feels like I, I really did start to think of it like a kind of uh, Odyssean journey to mm -hmm. all these different kind of nightmarish stops along the way to finally kind of turning about face and heading home again uh, on the original journey. Uh, and so I'm just I'm very impressed that you were able to turn it into that. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if that uh, kind of uh, Odysseus like journey was sort of in the back of your mind at all it's so funny i feel like people often say that literary fiction is all vibes no plot <laughs> and, I was, and i was definitely worried that that's what my novel was um you know because coming from a poetry background i really like to luxury in the language mm -hmm. and i definitely had to pare back a lot of that um you know i, I did a lot of revising where I had to get rid of sentences that were basically just a flex and weren't doing anything for the novel other than me being cute. Um, I love the flexes, though. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's it's so amazing to hear people kind of talk about how they see the transformations in the narrator and they see the through line and they see the way that the book is a journey and isn't just vibes. Because, I mean, I love just vibes, but it's, you know, it was it was a fear of mine that it would not necessarily sustain a reader's attention. Uh, because it's so hard to figure out how people are going to find the pacing of your book. Um, it's, you know, it's the kind of thing where I can keep reading. It's, I'm enjoying myself. But, mm -hmm. you know, w will a reader feel the suspense when I'm trying to evoke suspense? Um, that was really challenging. And um, to kind of pick up on the last question you asked about why this relationship, why family dynamics, um, you know, while I was working on the book, I actually went back to Moldova for the first time since my family immigrated when I was two. Um, that was in 2019 that I visited with my family. And I don't know what this book would have been had I not gone on that trip because it really, I think, made real a lot of aspects of my identity that I really hadn't understood in like a lived in way. Mm -hmm. um, 
And it was just a very surreal experience. And a lot of the way that I describe Moldova in the book is based on what I saw and felt when I was there. Um, you know, the scene in the Jewish cemetery, that's literally what the cemetery looked like, is this very kind of run down, almost bombed out in parts looking place with weeds growing everywhere, broken headstones. A lot of them are unreadable. You know, my family had to kind of bushwhack a little bit to get to some of our family's headstones when we were consulting the map. Um, and you really, you had to consult the map. You couldn't just wander because there's no way you'd find anything in that mess. Um, and, you know, what, what, what a estranging experience coming from America and coming from Los Angeles, where the Jewish cemetery here, where my family is buried, is beautiful. You know, it's very coiffed. There's deer, there's flowers everywhere. You know, you can see, you know, little squirrels climbing up trees and it's, it's very peaceful. Um, and so, and, and the murder that I describe in St. Petersburg of the queer activist that actually happened while I was in St. Petersburg. Um, it's based on, oh, wow. um, yeah, Yelena Gregorieva's murder, which has, to my knowledge, remained unsolved. Um, and is pretty similar to the way I described it in the book. So, you know, I was wrestling with all these things. And when I got back from the trip, you know, I knew I wanted to write about it, but writing nonfiction felt a little too hot. Um, and I, I felt like I didn't have any cohesive thoughts about it that I could translate into a personal essay. Um, but as I was working on the novel, that section Moldova just kind of came out, um, you know, almost wholesale the way that it is now and very organically. Um, and it helped me realize that intergenerational Jewish trauma and the legacy of the Holocaust, that these were part of the puzzle of why the narrator and Debbie's relationship is the way it is, why the narrator's mother's kind of mysterious mental illness is the way it is. And, you know, I think it partly explains why the narrator doesn't just dump Debbie, who by all accounts is a pretty shitty sister, at least in the narrator's eyes. Um, so I was interested in exploring how intergenerational trauma could be a factor in addiction, um, how it could affect people several generations removed from Soviet terror and the Holocaust. Um, and because it's literary fiction, you know, I think it, the form is forgiving of me not having like a really easily distillable thesis. Um, so it was nice to explore it in kind of an atmospheric way. You have so much in the Moldova section that does feel very personal. I, I wonder whether you worried at all. I was thinking as I read it, whether or not I could think of a single other book in American literature that had even touched on Moldova. Mm. And I couldn't come up with one. And I wondered whether you worried about giving it a, a, a kind of trueness and an, and an authenticity of place without having to kind of rest on, you know, tropes that that American readers would be able to pick up as a kind of post-Soviet landscape and wanting to, you know, do right by Moldova for all of its, you know, goods and bads and whether that was something you thought about. Absolutely. Yeah, you're the only person so far who's asked me that question. And it was very much something that haunted me because, you know, Moldova very rarely comes up in media that I consumed, at least prior to the war in Ukraine. Um, mm. And when it did, it was usually the butt of the joke. You know, it was usually like because Moldova is such a poor country and at points in time has been the poorest country in Europe. Um, oh, you know, what? it's often like, you know, often it comes up as like, you know, a peasant woman like shitting in the road or a mail order bride or. Um, no, you know, look yeah. at sex trafficker. It's just it's usually it's usually not, av you know, available to, I think, American viewers in a flattering way. And so one of the things that I worked on when I was revising it was injecting some more of the natural beauty into it, because I think for me, it was natural to focus on 
the ways that it was in stark contrast to my life here. So the ways that, you know, the cemetery was run down, that the banquet hall where my parents got married was abandoned with weeds growing everywhere. Um, you know, that when we went to the medical school campus where my parents met, that, you know, there were these gorgeous marble fountains that had just been put in. And yet, you know, state-sanctioned anti-Semitism is what forced my dad to join the army to even be allowed to go there. Um, you know, so there were all these kind of harsh things that I had to say that kind of explained why my family left as political refugees in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, but I also really wanted to be honest to the beauty of the place and its complications. So, you know, one thing I noticed is there were these gorgeous, vibrant wildflowers everywhere. And we had a lot of really nice interactions with the people who we <clears throat> who we met there, both people we knew and people that we just encountered. Um, like, for example, my family went to the apartment complex where my parents and I lived before we immigrated. And, you know, a couple who live there currently let us go inside and see their place. And, you know, we exchange contact info with them if they ever come to L.A. that will take them around. And to me, that's very much kind of Soviet and post-Soviet hospitality for you. Um, and even though that specific thing didn't make it into the book, um, you know, it's kind of an example of the me wanting to me, me seeing the beauty of the place that I think viewers don't really have access to normally and wanting to put some of it into the book, too. Hmm. I, well, I think you very much did. Uh, so we're living through what many public health officials describe as an opiate apocalypse. More than 100,000 people a year die of opiate abuse, and that number is likely to rise as fentanyl and other synthetics become more and more part of the drug cocktail. The narrator and her sister suffer with opiate addiction, and each attempts recovery in different ways. Was it scary to delve into this national trauma on an individual scale? Absolutely, it was. And, you know, it's addiction to opiates and benzos is something that, you know, I've kind of seen firsthand as a healthcare provider, um, more so the benzo side lately. Um, at my work, I do help folks uh, taper off benzos um, when they found themselves dependent on them or that they've just been taking a high dose for a long time and it's time to kind of try to taper back to, uh, for you know, for kind of their own quality of life. Um, so I've, I've seen what people experience with this firsthand. And yeah, it was it was really hard putting it to the page because I don't want to misrepresent anyone's experience. I don't want to, you know, it, there's a way that writing fiction about something like that can feel a little bit trivializing because you're mm -hmm. being so selective about how you describe it, what you talk about, which facets you do and don't um, share. And so, yeah, I, I felt like I had to really tread lightly and be very, very mindful about how I talked about, you know, what it feels like to take these drugs and how, you know, how it feels for these specific people. You know, I would hope that viewers would know that I'm not saying that this is what it's like for everybody. Um, and, yeah. you know, I, I was also, I think part of the reason why I started off writing the book with that as a thread from the beginning was, you know, I was very influenced by Dennis Johnson's book, Jesus' Son, um, like, like every 22-year-old who took a fiction workshop. Um, and, you know, I had this this image of writing kind of a feminist Los Angeles based Jesus is son of the opioid epidemic. And, you know, which I feel like is very indicative of like a 22 year old's idea of what a novel is. And then, you know, the more I worked on it, the more I kind of honed the idea and the less it became about this kind of scaffolding and the more it became about these specific characters. 
the I mean, I am not even joking you that I I hadn't read the comparison to Dennis Johnson, and I have two questions that compare <laughs> you to Dennis Johnson. On That's the, so funny on and very, very level. Uh, yeah, I, I said, in fact, my question says I'm going to do something that might get me a lot of Twitter hate and compare you to <laughs> to Dennis Johnson. I, I, it's it's not something I say lightly. I really do feel like that your sentence work in particular is very uh, Johnson-esque, which is not something you could just set out to do. I mean, it's not like you could just say, oh, I'm going to be like Dennis Johnson. And um, there's something about the kind of the violence, the surrealism, the combination of sort of like high and low vulgarity. I have a, a, a number of uh, small selections. So she she was pretty in that had gone to graduate school kind of way. Pauline was several decades older than her photo. Her home office smelled like a drugstore candle and her jewelry resembled something you'd get at Mardi Gras for showing your tits. At work, I was forced to entertain Joel, a former copy editor who picked up who picked at his skin so badly he had developed a staph infection. Glamorously disheveled women passed through my waiting room looking like they licked the devil's asshole for some <laughs> bargains that may or may not pan out. A platinum blonde woman with enormous breasts furiously kissed a man who looked like a contract killer on a frozen lake. So what's the, your craft process at the sentence level uh, other than trying to like raise the spirit of Dennis Johnson, like into mm. you. Well, I'm I'm so glad that you felt that connection there without me having to say it first, because that that means the world to me. You know, I think what I love about Dennis Johnson's prose and his poetry is I feel like he, you know, he picks up on these electric undercurrents that, um, you know, I think are so true to the experience of being alive that so few people know how to put into prose. And I think that that hyper specificity, that attuneness to, you know, as you said, the high and the low, um, I think that that is something I really tried to harness in my own prose. Um, and, you know, I think the fact that both Johnson and I are poets explains some of that hyperattention mm -hmm. to to every word. I mean, when I was revising the book, I really bled over every single word in the book and um, was writing a lot of time in pursuit of beauty which is why a lot of those sentences had to get cut because they were they might have been beautiful or funny um, or true, but they didn't necessarily fulfill the greater craft purposes of the novel. Yeah, I mean, you know, on on a very kind of nuts and bolts level, um, I do keep a notebook with me where I write down, you know, kind of interesting imagery that comes to me. And whenever I read a book, I'm constantly underlining for things that, you know, I wish I had written. Or you know, for images that surprise me, th things that are really specific, things that I don't see often in prose. So you know, the other day I was reading something and someone mentioned cough drops, and I was like, "Huh, cough drops? <laughs> I don't often see those written about." You know, they're this very no. of the world <laughs> artifact. <laughs> um, you know, and so th so things like that. So you know, the the necklaces uh, that you get at Mardi Gras for showing your tits. You know, I'm I'm always looking for these kind of surprising turns in the language, which is something I got from Johnson. And, you know, ultimately, it's not just meant to entertain or to make people laugh. I also wanted to pick up on how these characters are searching for something more. They're searching for a kind of transcendence, a kind of higher meaning. And they're searching for it in kind of these these um, high and low places, mostly low, where mm -hmm. sometimes they find it, but it always comes at a cost. Yeah, that's... That's a wonderful description of uh, of what you're doing. 
now that I've I've laid out a litany of rather terrible traumas in the novel, I'm going to stake my claim that this is an incredibly funny book. The comedy comes from the narrator's constant manipulation of her traumatic world into something like a comedic surreality where small, weird details about the world and her life are played for humor, including one of my favorites, soaking a piece of bread with Lexapro to give to an iguana named Apples who <laughs> suffers from anxiety. Uh, you would know better than I, but I'm I'm not quite sure the of the pharmacology of iguanas and anxiety, but, you know, I guess it's worth giving it a chance. The comedy can feel dangerous. Uh, and I wonder what was your experience kind of pairing humor and trauma? Well, I'm so glad that you found it funny. And I, I hope that the humor gets kind of front loaded in conversations about the book, because, you know, on a plot by, you know, on a, on a plot level, if you go through the, the beats of the book, it does cover a lot of really traumatic shit. Yeah. Um, and so and I think it's easy for the humor of the prose to get lost if it's not front loaded by the people discussing it. So I really appreciate that. You know, I think that growing up in a post-Soviet family, a post-Soviet Jewish family, uh, dark humor was just always the way that we communicated. Um, you know, every, you know, filthy Russian word that I know I got from my family um, <laughs> because I never really had like much of a formal uh, Russian education in the language. It was pretty much just what I heard around the house. Um, and, you know, so I think that there, there's a I think that that kind of darkly funny gallows humor is very much like a, a post-Soviet and Jewish outlook on the world. Um, so that's kind of the only way I know how to be. And, you know, just as a reader, I have a hard time really falling desperately in love with a book if it's not also funny. You know, I don't necessarily read a lot of books that are just funny with not much depth behind them. But when a book can balance darkness and humor, that's to me, there's nothing better. Um, and so it's kind of the only way I know how to write. And certainly it's something I had to pare back at times because I'm always kind of looking for that that humorous layer. And sometimes it can take away from, you know, more introspective character work or from a moment where we should actually sit in the gravitas or let people feel a little bit uncomfortable rather than kind of putting a humorous bandaid on it. Yeah. Um, so that, that was a big part of the editing process was, you know, there were like so many sex jokes that it like had to go because they were funny, but like they were doing nothing <laughs> except for making me laugh. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm very sad. I want the uh, unredacted sex jokes and all the vibe lines. Um, well, I'll, I'll give you one of the, one of <laughs> the lines that I still miss, which was, there was this this kind of cut scene where the narrator uh, picks up some, you know, absolute weirdo from Salvation because who else would go there? And they go back to her place and, uh, you know, he he basically wants to fuck and she wants to draw him. And so she has him lie <laughs> down on this like block of, <laughs> you know, the like the medical paper that they put over exam. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she like unrolls a bunch of that and gets a marker and they start like drawing each other. Um and, you know, he actually draws her really, like, shockingly beautifully, um, but she draws him very crudely. And she describes the, the way that, that she drew his penis as a flashlight casting rays of jizz. It's <laughs> <laughs> not like so much, even though it had nothing to do with the novel. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love the scene, too. I'm glad I can kind of put that in the, the background of the novel for myself. <laughs> there are all kinds of talismans and amulets and luck charms in the novel. A jade egg summarily placed inside the narrator's vagina for luck. 
a carved rabbit filled with Oxycontin, a pawn shop knife that is both a talisman and an unfortunate weapon. And then there is Sasha, the narrator's lover, who begins their relationship by claiming to be her amulet against terrible life outcomes. Can you talk about the power of amulets and talismans in the novel? Yeah, I mean, you know, I come from a culture that's very superstitious. You know, I think I am much less so, though I'm though I'm certainly uh, pretty much incapable of saying something really positive without also knocking on wood. I think that that's that's my toxic trait with that. But, you know, my my mom especially is very superstitious. And mm. so as my grandpa and you know, like, for, like, for example, when I just had a baby recently and when when um, my husband and I told my grandparents that I was pregnant, my grandpa like didn't even want to talk about it because he was afraid of jinxing it in his own head. Mm. Um, and after we left, apparently he turned all the glasses in his house upside down, which is some oh sort goodness. of way of casting off the evil eye. Um, it worked. <laughs> it worked. It worked. Yeah. My baby is perfect. <laughs> I'm currently knocking on wood. Um, but, you know, so I think I, I grew up around a lot of superstition and a lot of, you know, wearing evil eyes and red bracelets. And when I got pneumonia uh, at my brother's, after my brother's bar mitzvah, there was talk about whether someone put the evil eye on me because I looked too cute mm. in, in my tight pink dress. Um, so this is sort of the air I've breathed. Um, and, you know, I was interested in the idea of a person being an amulet, which isn't something I've really read about um, before. But I think that for someone like our narrator, who's always looking for someone to tell her who she is, it made sense that once Debbie was not in her life anymore, she would need another presence to dominate her and to reflect her back to herself. And um, at the same time, with her relationship with Debbie, she felt like she needed protection from her. And now here's this person offering to both protect her and show her how to live. And what could be more alluring than that? Yeah, absolutely. The This story is also about a queer awakening, one that has been churning within the narrator for years since she and her sister had stumbled upon some lesbian pornography on a public library computer. There's a way that was completely autobiographical, by the way. That was part. it? Oh, fantastic! <laughs> That's who, who, who among us hasn't accidentally watched porn in a public library? I, are those computers for anything else? I don't think so. <laughs> Um, there, there's a way in which queerness allows the narrator a kind of belonging that she had been searching for in her blood family and in communities of addicts and obviously with her sister, but not quite finding. How did you want to parallel those kinds of belonging with each other? Yeah. So it's interesting from the very start of the book. Um, like I said, I don't outline. I just kind of sit down and see what happens. Um, but from the very beginning of the book, um, it seemed clear that the narrator was queer and that that was an important identity to her, but not one in which the coming out process was going to be the center of the book. Like that was never going to be the book's primary occupation. Um, her queerness was just kind of another thing about her. Um, and certainly there is a queer coming of age element to the book, especially when it comes to her relationship with Sasha. Um, but like you said, it's about belonging. And it's just one of the many different kinds of belonging that the narrator is seeking. You know, it's not something that she really talks about with people in her life and Sasha helps give her the language. Um, but at the same time, the fact that they are in such different places with understanding their queer identity is also what causes a lot of friction in their relationship. Um, like when they're in Moldova and 
um, they're reading about the murder of the queer activist and the narrator is kind of hung up on how coincidental it feels that this that this bisexual woman was murdered in the city where the narrator is from. And Sasha's like, why would that be coincidental that one of the queerest cities in the former Soviet Union is the place where there would be a lot of homophobia and that someone would be killed? Like, there's nothing coincidental about that. That's just exactly how that would go. Um, but the narrator is kind of hung up on, you know, what would it be like if she had, if her family had stayed in the Soviet Union? Would that have been her? You know, would who would she be as a person? Would she have tapped into her queerness at all? And, you know, to Sasha, that's kind of a narcissistic way of responding to someone's murder because um, Sasha's so much farther along in her journey than the narrator is. Um, and then for Sasha, you know, her queerness is really inextricably linked to her believing she's psychic. And, you know, she tells the narrator that she discovered she was psychic after um, her mom had, you know, walked in on her kind of fooling around with some girl her age when she was like a kid, um, you know, very, very innocently. Yeah. Um, and that she discovered her psychic powers pretty much right after that. And so there's kind of this connection between queer trauma and clairvoyance um, and her being psychic, she believes, is both a kind of resilience and an extension of her queerness. And so it's a very different kind of queerness than the narrator's queerness. Um, and, you know, I was ultimately interested in what I think it was Jose Esteban Munoz who talks about queerness as an orientation toward the world. Yes. Um, yeah. 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 And not not just about, you know, who you fuck, but, you know, about envisioning the world as different than it is and being able to see that kind of other side. Um, and so those were some things that I was trying to explore with with the narrator's queerness in the book. Uh, well, also, thank you for invoking Munez, whose work I, I absolutely love and, and is yeah. rarely brought up by creative writers. Mm -hmm. So I, I appreciate that so much. There are there are all kinds of of lines of interrogation of of trauma and how one deals with them. There, there's an incredible um, moment in the novel where one of Sasha's relatives says the past isn't a bag of kittens you can dump in a lake. <laughs> well, firstly, that's Dennis Johnson there again. Um, uh, but it's also a fascinating way of imagining the intergenerational traumas that the narrator and Sasha, Sasha grapple with. In particular, the idea that comes up again and again of Shoah trauma, the passing down of Holocaust suffering mm -hmm. and guilt. How do you interpret that quote in light of the book's handling of this kind of intergenerational trauma? Mm. So the idea of Shoah grief was something that came to me after chatting with a friend a few years ago who um, her grandparents were Holocaust survivors. Um, and they, you know, I think like a lot of Holocaust survivors did not want to talk about it with their families. I think that the subject was too painful. Um, and so my friend's mother grew up in this household where um, the trauma that her parents had experienced had this constant presence, and yet it was unspeakable. And so the absence was itself a presence and a suffocating one, but not one that they could ever discuss. Um, so they could kind of, you know, the speaker's mother or the my friend's mother felt felt its edges everywhere, but without being able to talk about it, it was just this kind of unmetabolizable pain. And it affected the way that her mother grew up and it affected the speaker, too, because she grew up with a mother who had dealt with this silence and had her own traumatic responses to it. And so that got me thinking about the ways that people several generations removed from a trauma like the Holocaust could still be living partly in response to it. 
um, which wasn't something I had really thought about formally before. And it kind of created a helpful framework to understand why, you know, why the narrator can't quit Debbie and maybe what what she and Debbie are in pursuit of when they have these kind of degrading encounters at salvation. And, you know, I think it provided a framework, too, for the narrator trying to live in service of who she wants to be while also being keenly aware of the fact that who she is and wants to be would probably disappoint and repulse her ancestors to some degree, um, especially in relation to the queerness. I think she understands that her, her you know, shuttle relatives from, from the Soviet mm-hmm. Union would not be enthused <laughs> no. about that part. Um, <laughs> so lest I leave us with Shoah trauma, I'd like to end on a lighter note of um, wondering what it is you're reading and loving right now and, and whether you'd be willing to share that with the audience. Absolutely. So um, I recently read Homebodies by Tembe Dettenhurst, um, which was so good. It's about a young Black woman who works at a glossy magazine covering uh, beauty. And she gets laid off early in the book and in, in a way that I think will be really familiar to anyone following today's uh, media landscape. Um and, you know, she decides to go back home and is basically kind of processing the kind of racist framework of working in media and the ways that she tried to make herself a really kind of easily metabolizable, uh, mm-hmm. you know, black woman to work with. And she also, you know, is considering um, kind of being a whistleblower about her experience um, while wondering if that's going to ruin her career and while navigating um a relationship with her lover, um, her partner of several years, which is fraying because of how increasingly depressed the narrator is becoming um, mm-hmm. over being laid off. Um, and so it's just it's a very funny, very well written, very, very good book also about um, kind of coming of age and also about, you know, I think the the really fucked up politics of our media landscape. And um, yeah, highly, highly recommended. It. It's an excellent debut novel. It sounds um, great. It's really good. And then uh, just a couple books that were, I think, were in conversation with mine. Um, the Four Humors by Mina Seshkin. I read that. Um, I think I was already, I think I had already, I had already sold the book and I was in the revision process, but I've read it multiple times since then. Um, we're published by, we're both published by Catapult and we actually share an editor. And Catapult is awesome, by the way. They put oh, such amazing stuff. Yeah, yeah. They they've really more than done right by me. Um, and I, I love their books. And uh, the Four Humors is one of my absolute favorites. And one of the things that just killed me about Mina's book is that she has this scene in the book where um, her main character and the character's grandma they're in Turkey and they're watching this like Turkish talk show or something. And it's just it is exactly the the Russian talk show that I describe in my novel. It's you know just like toxic diet culture, vulgar uh, family dynamics, um, completely pseudoscientific segments about you know like don't eat raspberries after twelve p.m. or you'll gain weight and you know. Was that like ripped from the headline stuff? Because I kept thinking, is this really how these operate? I just remember growing up having that on in the background. Um, and just seeing this absolute like this, it's I mean, it's it's you know, it's it's not in some ways that different from like trashy American television. But, you know, but it just there's something about it that was just so, <laughs> so depressing and revolting. <laughs> but also you can't look away like where, you know, you'd see these literally like this, you know, the topic of the day would be some 18 year old who's dating like a 92 year old and 
the the 18 year old's mom is on the show just sobbing about her daughter giving her life away and you know it's kind of it's kind of some jerry springer shit and so just kind of seeing that in the background growing up i couldn't not write about it and it just killed me that that mina wrote about that too because it just made me feel like there's so many things that translate across immigrant cultures even you know completely different countries completely different lived experiences somehow we're all watching these like disgusting talk shows um (laughs) and we're all kind of you know working living in response to the fear of shame and shaming our ancestors and (laughs) we all kind of have this unrepayable debt to our ancestors for bringing us to this country at their own expense it sounds great (laughs) it's really really good yeah (laughs) yeah um i also um recently read couplets by maggie milner uh which is uh, i have that on my um bedside table it's excellent so it's it's i think they're calling it a novel in verse um it's about you know a woman um navigating um a relationship and break up with her lover um it's very queer it's very very hot you know and i'm just i'm incredibly impressed that she was able to write a poetry collection that has a plot <laughs> and and that has a chronology um, and it's in couplets and yet it doesn't feel like you're reading something that's that you would be taught in your like high school english class you know what i mean um like i think that because i write free verse poetry and i tend to read that i have this you know kind of i think unfair um, aversion sometimes to reading things, poetry that's very much in form and has a really strict structure because it, it, you know, it kind of reminds me of being assigned like Shakespeare sonnets and stuff. But this book is not that at all. I mean, it, it is it is in couplets, but it's so formally interesting and hilarious and hot. And yeah, I just don't know how she pulled it off. I've never read another book like it. Well, I'm sold with hilarious and hot. So uh, that sounds amazing. Uh, I know. What, what more could any of us want with our writing? Yeah, I, I recommend uh, Vikram Seth's Golden Gate. For, Ooh, okay. um, it is written in uh, sonic form, and it is a novel of 19, 1980s gay men living in San Francisco during the midst of the AIDS crisis. Mm, and, okay, exactly my shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think you would be very into it. And I recommend it to everyone because I think it's extraordinary what that very formalized form does when it you forget the form, which sounds yes. exactly like this couplets book. Yeah, well, that's I think you just put into words exactly what I loved about it is that, yeah, I wasn't conscious of the form while I was reading it, even though it was clearly doing a number on me. Yeah. What a magic trick. People who can mm-hmm. do that. I just yeah, I'm a little bit mad at them. But most of all, I want to recommend uh, All Night Pharmacy, which I just absolutely adored this novel. It will light you up. Uh, everyone needs to run out and and grab it from their local independent bookstore. And Ruth, it was really great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thank you for bearing with my brain lapses as I'm working off of just a few hours of sleep with a newborn around and trying to sound eloquent while like mostly having, you know, just like bottles of milk floating around in my head all day bumping into (laughs) each other. Well, you sounded very eloquent and I wouldn't have known you were lacking sleep. (laughs) Well done. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for the thoughtful questions. This was so much fun. Well, that's all from me for now. My great thanks to Ruth Madievsky for coming on to talk about her incredible debut novel, All Night Pharmacy. You can find links to purchase Ruth's novel and all of her recommended books at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes and links to buy a podcast t-shirt and ways to get in contact. 
As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books.